If you remember a genocide, then the question comes up, what could have been done to stop it? Who did it? Who was responsible? Sometimes it's easier just to, to look away. And that was true for some survivors who kept the stories of what they endured from their children. My father was a bit you know, distant or dissociated. There was a look he had in his eyes. When he would look at me, I always felt like he was looking just past me. And it was only after he died that I learned, almost by accident, that he'd had a first family. While some survive by suppressing the memories, new research shows our bodies not only remember and respond, but can change. The field of epigenetics is breaking new ground and informing the way we understand how trauma moves across generations. But for children of survivors, some do not need the validation of research. I know that the anxiety and the stress has, is part of my DNA. There is uh, some anxiety that we're dealing with, and I do believe that could come from generations later, feeling the impact of that horrific experience. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, law enforcement agencies received a threat assessment from the Department of Homeland Security, warning that an emboldened network of domestic terrorists pose an ongoing threat to both government and faith-based communities, including the Jewish community. How will the Biden administration respond to domestic terrorism is a question many are asking. And one leadership post, the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, that sits inside the State Department, well, it's getting a lot of attention. In the last few weeks, one name has been circulating on a short list of potential nominees. Emory University historian and well-known campaigner against Holocaust denial, Dr. Deborah Lipstadt. I spoke with her a year ago on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. This week, we revisit that conversation. We begin with this question. What was the controversy? People didn't want to commemorate. Memory's a tricky thing. If you remember a genocide, then the question comes up, what could have been done to stop it? Who did it? Who was responsible? Um, sometimes it's easier just to, to look away. I think that changed, and the UN decided to address it directly, and it's become quite a international moment of remembrance. Mm. I was just out of the country, and I was uh, working on another assignment, and I was interviewing a young woman who was about 18 years old. We shifted the conversation from what we were talking about, and I said, I have a completely different question. Do you know about the Holocaust? And she looked at me quizzically. I then worked with the translator and I said, I gave more details. Mm -hmm. She had no idea. Mm -hmm. None. So I want to ask you this question. Who is this for and why is it such a challenge 
first of all, I do think in Israel it's necessary, though Israel has Yom HaShoah, which happens in April, okay. right after Passover. And it, something to be seen, sirens sound at 11 o'clock in the morning, and the whole country comes to a stop, the busiest highway. The cars stop in the middle of the highway. Trucks stop. in full, the middle. Full stop. Full stop. People get out of their cars and stand at attention. So I do think it's necessary. I think it's necessary we have anniversaries of death. You know, certainly in the Jewish tradition, it's called the yard side, uh, the moment of the year when you remember the death of a parent, of an immediate family mm. member, a child, if it, God forbid, a, a sibling. So I think everybody needs to remember. But having said that, I think there is a special need to remember. This is a genocide, a state-sponsored genocide, that happened in the heart of Christian Europe by people who claimed to be the most cultured, the most advanced, the most enlightened. It couldn't have happened without the complicity of millions of people looking the other way. I'll give you an example. Everyone talks about Poland as being the site of the camps. Of course, the Germans built those camps in Poland, and Poland was occupied. But I'll sometimes have people say to me, what, you went to Poland? And I said, yeah. And there was deep-seated anti-Semitism amongst the Polish population. We know that many Poles hid Jews, but far more turned them over and, and informed on them. So people say, how can you go to Poland? And I say, excuse me, didn't you just come from Paris? And they say, oh, of course I love France. And I say, okay, let's go, let's turn on the internet and let's go to photographs and go to a search engine and put in Paris, July 1942, roundup of Jews when they're taken to Valdiv, the winter velodrome, and held there in terrible circumstances and then deported to the camps. I said, let's look for German officers, because France, Paris was occupied by the Germans. You can look in vain. You will see French gendarmes. You will see French officials. It's all organized and carried out by the French. Supported by the French. And supported by the French population. Today, everyone will tell you, oh, my father, my grandfather, my parents were in the Maquis, in the resistance. If everybody was in the resistance <laughs> that says they were in the resistance, the Germans would not have lasted long in France. People need to remember but you just raised something that struck me. In telling that story of, of how we remember and what we remember, they're narratives that compete. You are a historian. Mm -hmm. How quickly do we see challenges to the retelling? It's inconvenient history. Don't confuse me with the facts. I don't want to hear it. And and then you hear people say, oh, we've heard so much about slavery, or we've heard so much about the Holocaust. Why do we have to hear about the Holocaust again? Again, another movie, memorial, or whatever. We haven't heard enough about it. And it is something that is already being retold in ways that leave out significant Absolutely. pieces. Can you, you know a lot about that in particular. Well, I know a lot about, certainly, about Holocaust denial. When you say Holocaust denial, what does that mean? There are two forms of Holocaust denial. I divide it into a term I coined, which is now pretty common usage, hardcore Holocaust denial and softcore Holocaust denial. Hardcore Holocaust denial says there was no plan to kill the Jews, there were no gas chambers, there were no death camps, the Jews have made this all up to get money, to get a state of Israel, to do all sorts of nefarious things, which, as the anti-Semite would say, Jews do. And let me ask you. Mm. 
When? When did this emerge? Very early. It emerges with German expats and German Nazis after the defeat of the Third Reich of the end of World War II, for whom the Holocaust is inconvenient history. In fact, one of the COOs, chief operating officers of the killing of the Jews, was a man named Adolf Eichmann. He escapes after the war when it becomes clear, when his name comes up at Nuremberg and people are looking for him, etc., with the help of the Vatican. He escapes to Argentina, and he lives there, and, and Germ- there are a lot of German expats who are loyal Nazis in Argentina, and he goes and he talks to them, and he tells them about the war, and they're very excited to hear from him. Here's someone who was you know, in the Nazi leadership, certainly. And he talks about the genocide. He says things to the effect of, I'll jump into my grave laughing over the death of six million Jews. And some of the expats listening to him say, oh, no, 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 that couldn't have happened. That couldn't have happened. He said, of course it happened. You get a denial of the Holocaust from people for whom it's inconvenient to talk about Nazism that way. Because, you know, if you take out the genocide of the Jews, and certainly um, had the Germans won, there would have been a, quote unquote, finishing the job, murdering of the rest of the Roma and Sinti, sometimes called gypsies. They murdered quite a few. We don't know how many, but it wasn't it wasn't complete. And you're talking about the Roma, the disabled, the LGBTQ. Right. But only with the Jews did it have to be right now in a systemic kind of fashion. Of course, starting with the German disabled, many of whom were Jews, using that to design the program for the death It camps. was engineered. It was, it was more than engineers. Germany was seen as the epitome of intellectual advancement and modernity and accomplishments. The Holocaust could not have happened without the input, the direct input of lawyers, doctors, and engineers. All three things we identify with an advanced, enlightened society. Organized. Organized, enlightened. Rule following. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The people who deny have no evidence, no witnesses, no narrative, nothing. Hardcore denial would say there was no plan. There was no program and the guys' chambers were impossible. But they throw this out. For them to be right, who would have to be wrong? Certainly the documents. The Holocaust has the dubious distinction of being the best documented genocide in history. But who would have to be wrong? All the survivors... All the bystanders, you know, people who lived in the villages around the death camps, the thousands of historians who work on this. We would all have to be have been duped or be part of this massive hoax. And finally, the perpetrators. In not one war crimes trial since the end of World War II has any perpetrator of any nationality ever said it didn't happen. They say, I didn't do it. I had to follow orders. I couldn't help it. I had no choice. But they never say it didn't happen. The German nation, which has paid billions in reparations. So it it makes no sense. But yet, denial persists. For the anti-Semite, the Holocaust is inconvenient because Jews get sympathy. Jews, you know, look as victims. And for the anti-Semite, the Jew is devious, powerful, richer than, able to make governments do what it wants. So for the anti-Semite, the Holocaust is very, very inconvenient. So it's easier to deny. I read an article you wrote recently about the relationship between conspiracy theories and 
the ability to sustain prejudice uh, against the Jewish people, anti-Semitism. I just wrote a book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now. It's written as a series of letters to a Jewish student and a non-Jewish colleague. They're really fictional characters, but every question they ask me, every issue they raised are things that have been asked of me and raised to me. And the point I make there is that anti-Semitism is a prejudice like racism, homophobia, fear of Muslims, and so many other prejudices. And think about the word prejudice, pre-judge. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. I know who you are just by looking at you. I have a template in my head. That's right. A stereo. Exactly. A template. template. But if we contrast, let's say contrast anti-Semitism to racism, the racist looks down on the person of color. Here in in America, the black person was seen as not quite competent, not quite smart enough, not quite accomplished enough. They didn't need good schools. The anti-Semite looks at the Jew and sees someone more powerful than, richer than, uh, more conniving than. A threat. Exactly. Conniving, smarter, but maliciously smarter. And even though they're small in number, they punch above their weight. And they are not just to be held in contempt, but they are to be feared because of the conspiracy that they mount against you. They mount this conspiracy of the myth of the Holocaust, said the deniers. They mount this conspiracy that they are victims when how could they be victims? You're wealthy, you're white, and we know many Jews are not wealthy. And we know that I'm told that in the United States, over 10% of the Jewish population are people of color. People of color is a growing number. So they look at the Jew and they say, how can you be a victim? It's impossible for you to be a victim. You must be making this up. While anti-Semitism fits into the panoply of of prejudice and the fears associated with prejudicial hatred, it has this unique element of this conspiracy that I have to be afraid of the Jew because who knows what they're doing. And if you were to take a look at the various isms, Mm -hmm. is there another ism in which the group is seen as a powerful threat. Well, you know, you could say, some people would say the media. But isn't that interesting? Who controls the media? Who controls the banks, says the anti-Semite? People often talk about George Soros. The philanthropist. The philanthropist. Hungarian. Hungarian. Uh, Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, hates him because he's a, he's a liberal and he wanted an open society. And a survivor. And a survivor. And some people say, oh, he was a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi. He was 14 years old and was hidden with officials. There were all sorts of terrible things said about him. You can disagree with his politics sure. 100%. And I disagree with some of the things he, he, he fights for. But he has become the Rothschild of the 21st century. For someone who doesn't have the context, who's the Rothschild? Rothschild. The House of Rothschild was a, a Jewish bank, a family in Europe. There were, I think, five sons, and they were bankers. And they Uh, were powerful. They became very wealthy and very powerful. There's some in France, some in England, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. And the Nazis defined them as the prototype of Jewish evilness Mm -hmm. and evildoers. So they became a sort of stand-in, these controlling people. So today, when someone's saying, oh, this is all George Soros is doing— Again, you can that should, dis- that should set off a warning bell. That should bell. set up a warning bell. Exactly. What's the origin story of this? The power and the control of media, finance. What's the origin story? The origin story is very old. It's in the New Testament. 
It's the story. So you're taking us to the Bible. I'm taking you back to the Bible, to the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I do not want to suggest that the New Testament is ipso facto anti-Semitic. The way the story is told, is related, that the Jews wanted Jesus killed. Jesus was one of theirs, but he, he wanted to chase the money changers out of the temple. And the priests in the temple didn't want this, so they went to the Romans and they said, you know, crucify him. The Romans didn't want to do it. But then the Jews cry, crucify him, crucify him, and they pressure the Romans, and the Romans do it. There's your template. And the way that template was used throughout the Middle Ages, cunning, able to, smart, able to figure out how to convince Rome, the most powerful entity in the world, to do this thing, and then the power, even though they're small in number, these Jews in Judea, they're a tiny group, they get Rome to do what they want. There you have the template for it. And then it is used through the Middle Ages by church fathers, mainly fathers, to depict not just Judaism. You know, Christianity wants to differentiate itself from Judaism, wants to say we're a different religion. Not only are we different, we're, we're an improvement on Judaism is anachronistic, it's blind, it doesn't understand. Jesus came and, and brought us to a higher level. But what you have in the Middle Ages, throughout the Middle Ages, is not just the demonization of Judaism, but demonization of the Jew. In other words, not just that this belief is unenlightened because it doesn't see the, the light that Jesus, is, has, the Christian would say, has brought to the world, but the person who adheres to it is to be feared. Your children should not go near them, especially at the time of Passover. They will come and desecrate the host, you know, the uh, wafer in the Catholic Church, which was— which The during, sacrament. And there, there are depictions of medieval carvings of Jews coming and stabbing the host in blood bursting forth or killing Christian children, which is a reenactment of the crucifixion. They they killed our Lord once, they'll kill us a second And children time. being a representation of the exactly. future. But then it moves. Yeah, it moves it, it out evolves. of there. I mean, it evolves. Yeah, I want to add this because I don't want to sound like I'm you know, saying, oh, it's all in Christianity, though I was talking to someone yesterday who teaches at a Christian seminary, and she says, we liberal Protestants have not dealt sufficiently. You want to resist the temptation to say this is all biblical, and I hear you saying that. People because play it, a moves. Role. It, it moves. It moves. What does that mean, Deborah? It, it okay, moves. I'll give you moves an example. with what and Voltaire. why. Voltaire. Voltaire, 17th century France, writes about the Jews in the most vicious way. Voltaire was no fan of the church. He hated the power of the church. Yet when he writes about the Jews, he could be the, the worst anti-Semitic preacher from, the, from a church in the Middle Ages. It moves outside the church. It moves to Karl Marx, who hates hated all religion. But when he writes about Jews, it could be from that period. It could be written, written by a church father. It moves to the Nazis. It moves to the eugenicists, the people who believe in white supremacy. So it is a hatred. It, there's a reason why we call it the longest or the oldest hatred. It, it has feet, and it moves along. And then, you know, people say, well, it must be true it's so old. There was a historian at Yale, Peter Gay, and he used to say, where there's smoke, there's smoke makers. doesn't mean there's fire. It means that people are stirring sure. up the pot. And for through the lens of political science and history, we know that beliefs play a role like many other ideologies that often are in service of or as part of a larger objective Look, if among I want, those who want po power, land, money, relationships. Exactly. I mean, Look, if I say to you, 
My rent has gone up. I got to close my nice little store. My shyster landlord is jacking up the rent. Shyster immediately is that linkage. It's one of the terms used mm-hmm. in connection with Jews, et cetera. Someone said, how did that happen? And I said, well, it's the bicyclist, all the bicycle riders. And you're going to look at me and say, the bicycle riders? That's just crazy. But if I say to you, it's the Jews who came in here and took over, even if you don't think of yourself as an anti-Semite, you're going to say, oh, I didn't know that. It taps into that template. It taps into the template, the stereotype. Softcore Holocaust denial is not denial of the facts, but it's diminishing them, sort of saying, oh, God, why are they still talking about the Holocaust? It happened 75 years ago. Get over it. I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't have anything to do with it. Get over it. But it's uh, diminishing it or... This is also very common, saying, well, weren't the Jews really allies of the Germans? You see, hear this on the left. Oh, the Zionists. There was one agreement in 33 between the German Zionist organization and and the Nazis to help Jews get their stuff out of Germany. Nazis had placed such high taxes on them. But after that, there's oppression. The last thing the Nazis want is a Jewish state. The last thing uh, they want is is to cooperate with the Jews. Can I turn the victim into an accessory of his or her own oppression? Once you turn the victim into an accessory, into their own persecution, you lessen the uh, guilt of the perpetrator, especially if the perpetrator is a group with somehow you can be identified with, you lessen your own wrongdoing. That's religious studies professor and historian Deborah Lipstadt, the DeRoe Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. This week, we're revisiting our episode marking the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the Nazi death camp in Poland. Sixteen years ago, the United Nations called on member states to use the anniversary to combat the Holocaust denial and evidence of a new wave of anti-Semitism. In our conversation recorded in January 2020, Dr. Lipstadt traces how Holocaust denial, anti-Semitism, and conspiracy theories are intrinsically linked, reinforcing fear and dehumanizing narratives. The result, misinformation campaigns are flourishing, and neo-Nazi propaganda is finding a new audience. Despite the fact that the Holocaust is indisputably the best documented genocide in history. Let's get back to my conversation. The Holocaust is inconvenient history for Christians, inconvenient history for Europeans, inconvenient history for enlightened liberals. You've mentioned the left quite a bit. Right and left. I'm mentioning the left because... People recognize that anti-Semitism comes from the right. The far right looks upon the Jews as orchestrating what they call white genocide or white genocide replacement theory, that there is a plan to replace white Christian society, white Christian leadership, white Christian culture with black people, brown people, Muslims, people from Africa, people from the Middle East. Those people aren't smart enough, says the white supremacist. Those people aren't talented enough, says the white supremacist, to be orchestrating this on their own. Something is behind them. Someone is behind them making this happen. Ah, the Jew. 
that's what the Charlottesville marchers were chanting when they said, Jews will not replace us. You talk about inconvenient history, and we're talking about Holocaust remembrance. When you look at where we are today in the 21st century, and you see the rise of anti-Semitism, what does remembering look like? Remembering, to my mind, looks like being aware of what happened, not seeing that as an isolated event in history, recognizing the role, a tradition you might treasure, a tradition you might value, might have had in it. And then it looks like action today, maybe small actions, to become the unwelcome guest at the dinner party. What does that mean? If someone at a dinner party, at a casual event, makes a crack that is anti-Semitic, that is racist, that is homophobic, that is an attack on Muslims, whatever it might be, to call the people out, to call the person out. You may not change the mind of the person who's making the statement. Who's your audience? The people around, at the other members of the dinner party. So to call someone out and make it clear that we don't accept that kind of talk. So becoming the unwelcome guest at the dinner party, A. B, in terms of specifically anti-Semitism, recognizing that it is serious, that it is a real threat, even though Jews may not present as your quote-unquote typical victims. College administrator may look at the Jewish student who comes in and says, you know, I just got made fun of because I was wearing my kippah, my my head covering, and then he thinks, I had some African-American students in here whose families are struggling, first generation in, in college, they're having a hard time, and this Jewish kid of privilege here is coming in to say that they're a victim. In other words, We don't look like the typical victims in most cases. And the third thing, I think, and again, it's a small thing, but I think it's an important thing, to remember that all genocide begins with words. There is no genocide in human history which began with actions. Armenia, Rwanda, Srebrenica, the former Yugoslavia, and the, and the massacre and the genocide of um, uh, Muslim men and boys, Darfur. It doesn't matter where it is, uh, what's going on now with the Rohingya in Myanmar. It starts with words. Now, not everyone who is exposed to those words is going to pick up a gun or a machete or whatever and, and kill someone, but they'll have hatred instilled in them. Be careful with what you say. In the Talmud, the the compendium of Jewish law and lore and stories, etc., there's a teaching directed particularly at leaders, at the wise, at the people who set the tone in society. But I would say to everyone, be very careful with your words. Mm. It begins with words. I wrote a book on Holocaust denial. One of my early books was describing the phenomenon of Holocaust denial. I thought it would be a temporary foray into the topic. That temporary. I w- yeah. <laughs> In the book, I devoted, I don't know, uh, 200 words at the most to a man named David Irving, a writer of historical works. I don't call him a historian, a writer of historical works who had become a denier. He had adopted the mantle of denial. It was a way for getting, I don't know whether, I don't know whether he did it because of to get publicity, to get followers. He's always been a man of the far right, but people liked his work and thought it had validity, et cetera. My book came out very well, broadly accepted and praised here in the United States, and then was published in England. Penguin UK bought it. 
And as soon as that happened, I was considered by British law to be doing business in the UK, you know, to, so I was subject, subject to their laws. He sued me for libel for calling him a Holocaust denier. He claimed he wasn't a Holocaust denier. So he sued me for libel. And libel law in England is the mirror image of American libel law. The person who's the originator of the words, who spoke the words, wrote the words, slander or libel, is, has to prove the truth of what they said. Here in this country, if I say you libeled me, uh, you, I have to prove you libeled me. In England, you have to prove you didn't libel me. So I fought him. And after a 10-week libel trial, I won what the press described, the British press and the American press described as a stunning victory. One newspaper said, history has had its day in court and won a stunning victory. Everyone has a story of a connection, of knowing someone who was a survivor, and of studying the, as you say, how it all begins with words. And I have heard more people in the last six months talk about a visceral fear that they need to come up with a plan for their families if things continue to show evidence that acts of violence and the dehumanization in language is reflected in state behavior and fear that it'll happen so quickly you won't know and it could happen again. What do you say to them when you hear that? I got to imagine I'm not the only one here. No, that. I know I've heard many people. Well, as you can, we're radio, so your your listeners can't see this, but as you can see, I'm wearing a Jewish star. Yeah, I've been wearing it now for about three weeks. Why? I never did before. I never felt any need to wear my religion on my sleeve. You know, I was who I was. That was a private matter. I mean, people knew I wrote about it, but it wasn't something I had to proclaim. Because my great fear, and I just wrote about this, about Jews going underground, that the impact of anti-Semitism will be, well, don't wear your kippah in the street. Don't wear your Jewish star. Don't show that you're Jewish. And when you hide who you are, it's never healthy. And Jews spent so much time, particularly in this country, you know, wanting to sort of melt into the in stay Jewish but but not proclaim it don't show it don't 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 let it be obvious and then in the past 3 decades 4 decades that had changed with an open expression of their Jewish identity and it it's been a very positive development and very positive expression i don't want to go underground i won't go underground there are that doesn't mean that synagogues aren't protected now. It's rare to go into a synagogue where there's not a guard. You know, just to look at it from practical matters, there's so many needs in the Jewish community, social needs, welfare needs, educational needs. It just happened that, that Evo in New York, a wonderful institution founded initially in Vilnius, laid off all its librarians. And yet the Jewish community is spending millions on security. I don't want to live defensively. I don't. I, I have faith in this country, even though I'm very troubled by what's going on in this country, the divisions in this country, the open expressions of anger and hatred, and the way they're ginned up by, by some leaders. I don't have a plan, and if my plan is, if anything, I'm going to wear my religion and my identity more on my sleeve, not in an in-your-face kind of way, but I don't want it to be said that I've gone underground.
That was religious studies professor and historian Deborah Lipstadt, the DeRoe Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She is an award-winning author with titles including Anti-Semitism Here and Now, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, and The Eichmann Trial. Coming up, we turn from denying to surviving. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're revisiting our episode marking the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Although it has been seven and a half decades, the trauma of the Holocaust persists. We turn now to taking a closer look at the challenges facing survivors and their families. Struggles made harder because of misconceptions. People believe that all the Holocaust survivors are going to be gone in five years. But we know now that many children survived the Holocaust and were children during the Holocaust. And um, they could be as young as 75 or 76 today. So that is one of the biggest myths. The other myth is that all families were incredibly, quote, damaged. That is Jenny Frumer. She's the Director of Strategic Initiatives of Next Generations in West Palm Beach, Florida. She spent three decades working to offer trauma-informed services to families. Two years ago, Next Generations co-sponsored a conference with the University of Miami Medical School to explore how science can help answer a question at the center of an emerging field, epigenetics. Can trauma be passed across generations? For Frumer, the conference was not just about sharing information. It was to also dispel myths and share stories that inspire. And what we've learned is that families, while they were trauma-exposed, and the implications of that uh, are really multi-generational, resilience is not spoken about enough when we talk about trauma exposure, and particularly Holocaust survivors who 
survive just the most incredible, incomprehensible atrocities. For families of survivors, the story is complicated. Stephanie Schweike did not attend the conference, but she has connected with support groups for survivors. Stephanie's mom was one of the children of the Holocaust that Jenny Frumer described. My personal narrative was the Holocaust. My mom's parents were survivors. My mom was actually born in a displaced person camp in 1946. So I was first generation on my mom's side, Canadian. My dad's family came over from Russia before the war. But I grew up with a very, very deep, dark landscape of sort of remnants from the Holocaust. My grandmother never integrated into North American society. She only spoke Yiddish to my brothers and I, and was always a very kind of sad and complicated figure in my life. Mm. My parents are wonderful. They did, my mom specifically did the best she could Mm -hmm. with a really tough load of baggage that she had to carry. I mean, she she truly was a child of Holocaust survivors and was born into a really abysmal, tough, complicated, dark place. So despite the fact that there was always a little bit of a pal of sadness, I led a very happy childhood. David Kupfer is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma-informed therapy. He grew up outside Richmond, Virginia, and now practices in the D.C. suburbs in Falls Church, Virginia. He is the son of a Holocaust survivor. My father was a medical doctor. He was born in a little town in Poland, the same little town my mother was born in, Andomiesz, which is a little town on the Vistula River, the main river that flows through Poland. And my father got a medical degree in Prague before World War II. He went to Prague for medical school because they weren't admitting Jews in the Polish medical schools at that time. And when the war began in Europe in 1939, my father was forcibly evacuated. What does that mean exactly? It means the Russians needed your help because you were a valuable professional. He was a doctor. You weren't drafted into the Russian army. He wasn't a prisoner of the Russian army. He was told, you're coming with us. And he had a choice. He had a, a wife and a daughter. And he chose to do what made sense to him at the time, which is to leave them behind with family in Poland rather than take them into Russia. And he never saw them again. He came back from Russia at the end of the war and found that his wife, daughter, brother, sister, mother, father, and many other relatives had all been killed. He then re-encountered my mother, who he'd grown up with in Sandomiesz, and my mother's family had survived intact, which was a, a rare miracle, and they decided after the war to get married. That story of being drafted, leaving behind your wife and children and family fully expecting to have them there when you return. I can't even imagine what he must have gone through. What was it like growing up in your home? There was a a kind of paradox or bind that many children of survivors can tell you about. There was a, a message sent to us simply by the names we had. I'm named after my grandfather, David, and my uncle, Leon, my father's father, my father's brother. They were two of the six million Jews who died in the Holocaust. When you're born with that name, your parents kind of expect you to be replacements for people you can't replace. 
there's a loss that we were born to help deal with, and we're not up to it. All we can do is live one good life. Another way to look at the double message that children of survivors get is that if your parents wanted you to be close to them, you had to be close to someone who may have been traumatized, depressed, anxious. But they also told you to be happy. They survived not for you to be depressed, but to be a happy person. So it was kind of confusing in a way. I learned how to reassure anxious people. Growing up in Montreal, Stephanie is grateful for the privileges she enjoyed, but she reflects on her mother's struggles with a new understanding. I was fortunate. My parents put everything they could financially and love and otherwise into raising my brothers and I. But I think I also grew up with a mother who was emotional and and a little, you know, I guess the classic neurotic Jewish mother. But there were reasons behind it. It Mm -hmm. wasn't just this pathology of the neurotic Jewish mother. It's real. And I think if we dig into why my mother was the way she was and frankly is the way she is, I understand it. I didn't always. And I think oftentimes we we become a little bit contrarian. My mom raised us a certain way. I, I saw my mom cry a lot. Mm. I saw my mom's emotions not entirely um, in check. And that scared me. That was a very scary thing for uh, a child to see. Yeah. And I always felt safe. It wasn't a question of safety. It was just emotionally very fragile. And so raising my three children, I almost feel like I have to be super compartmentalized and buttoned up because I don't want to put my kids through those feelings. Does trauma travel across generations as new epigenetic research on Holocaust and genocide survivors may suggest? For David and Stephanie... They see it as not just plausible, but entirely possible, reflecting on their own experiences and families. I know that the anxiety and the stress has is part of my DNA. And, you know, whether that's been proven or not, I I can't speak to that. But in in the years of going to therapy and address what my daughter is dealing with, Mm -hmm. it's something that has been brought up and talked about. And I know that there's there is some research on it, and I, I firmly do believe that part of, you know, the pathology of anxiety and, and, and what I feel maybe I'd like to take credit for some of the positive things that I passed on to my children, mm-hmm. there is, there is uh, some anxiety that we're dealing with, and I do believe that could come from generations later of feeling the impact of, of that horrific experience. I know that I have my own struggles with anxiety and depression, you know, just like my mother did. And I do believe that it's inherited. There is some rather new research in the last few years that shows that possibly it's not just that your parents are anxious in the way they raise you. It's not just psychological transmission of trauma from one generation to the next. It may be genetic. It may be physiological that the same expression of genes is seen in parents who survive trauma themselves and in the next generation, in their children. Mm. So we're not sure of it yet, but there's research that says it's not just psychologically transmitted, it's physiologically, genetically transmitted trauma from one generation to the next. For Stephanie and David, the effects of trauma are still an unknown area, and coping is essential. 
But what's most important in their minds is resilience. If you're going to describe the generation on part of the children of survivors as traumatized, you got a good point. We are. But yet it's very important to me that you also see us as an inspired generation or a resilient generation. Again, we know two things. We don't just know that our, we're anxious and depressed after being traumatized. We know that they made it and moved on to successful new lives after such a huge loss. We, we know that trauma does carry to the next generation. How? We certainly know that people who are traumatized are parents uh, of a certain kind. Like my mother was an anxious, overprotective parent who didn't let me like spend the night at other kids' houses. So my mother, understandably, was a a fearful person who wanted more than anything else to protect me. My father was more worldly, you know, had been to medical school, traveled more than my mother. He was older. He was a bit you know, distant or dissociated, you might say. He loved me, but there was a look he had in his eyes. When he would look at me, I always felt like he was looking just past me. And it was only after he died that I learned, almost by accident, that he'd had a first family who died. When I learned that, it helped me understand that look. I understood why he may have been looking past me. And I really felt for him. I, I realized how much pain and loss he had experienced and how amazingly impressive his post-war life was. He, he had to adapt to a whole new medical system, a whole new country, a new language, and he did very well professionally. So it gave me immense respect for him. It gave me you know, a lot of empathy for him, and it made me aware that people are resilient. Mm -hmm. That I know. For Stephanie, teaching her children about the experience, grounding them in an understanding of what their grandmother and great-grandmother have survived, is deeply important and has an urgency. I definitely share stories about what my grandmother went through. And I did bring Josh at a really, he's my oldest, he's 17. We went to Israel for the first time when he was nine. And we went to Yad Vashem and I, I went through the museum with him wow. and took him through the Children's Memorial. What which did that, was, what, how did he react? He freaked out. And it was probably not one of my stronger, most <laughs> intelligent parenting, parenting moves. Hey. But I felt like I didn't know the next time we were going to be there. Mm -hmm. And I strongly want my children to know where they come from, mm -hmm. the story of their grandmother. And it, it has, I, I, I believe it has impact on them. David has grown children, but he, too, feels the urgency to share lessons with young people. So he volunteers at the United States Holocaust Museum. Unfortunately, the human race keeps turning out more and more genocides. You know, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum opened in 1993. What happened in Rwanda one year later? Genocide. You know, what happened in Cambodia during the 70s? Genocide. A few months ago, I gave a tour of the museum to, to Rohingya Muslims who have been the victim of genocide. So we have more and more people, maybe more awareness that you know, trauma happens in many, many families, that genocide victims you know, are out there needing help, needing safe havens. And hopefully we as therapists have learned a little bit more about how to help them. 
For Stephanie, it's more than not forgetting. It's leaning in to her Jewish identity. It's really educating and learning and never forgetting. I mean, that's really the idea behind it. It's never forgetting. And I think about, you know, how I carry myself. I am very, very proud to be Jewish. And it's something that I feel I went to Jewish day school. It's a big part of who I am. And maybe if I dig into it, I am always a little bit afraid of someone saying something that is offensive. So I'm putting it out there first. I have had comments through the years that have been off-putting and anti-Semitic in nature that, you know, I've spoken out about. But I do think that the sensitivities that I have, because it is so sensitive to me, has really kind of defined me into who I am today as being very, very outwardly and very proud to be Jewish and really strongly wanting to educate as much as I can. Mm. The incident that happened in Pittsburgh, Tree the of Tree of Life, my children go to Hebrew school, and I'll never forget this. I mean, this obviously speaks to bigger issues than anti-Semitism and, and, and what's, what other stuff's going on in this country, but as, especially as someone like me who didn't grow up in this country, I re- distinctly remember sharing this with my daughter, who is, you know... She was nine at the time. And when I told her what happened, she, she said, and this, this broke my heart, she said, I hate this country. Mm. And, you know, she really, she's actually my child I mentioned that has anxieties. She was scared. I had to then send her to Hebrew school the next day. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the solution is that we go underground. I don't think the solution is that we shy away from it. I don't think the solution for me is that I shy away from being who I am. A lot of who I am is rooted in where I come from. If there's anything that can take away and try and put a positive on is my my willingness to sort of dig deep and to try to have those conversations and really continue those conversations with my children because that is really the root of it is just never forgetting and to make sure that what's happened in the past and what is happening today doesn't continue to happen throughout the world. Both see the potential of memory to traumatize and heal. The downside to remembering trauma is that you can be overwhelmed by it. It could make you feel like a victim. It could make you feel worthless. It can make you feel guilty. It can make you feel like you deserved to be hurt, traumatized, taken advantage of. The upside is if you can tell your story of a trauma to an understanding audience, you know, trauma shared is trauma healed. When I go to work, I enter my office often with someone who's been traumatically hurt, whether it's sexual assault or physical abuse or something, and I know that they can overcome their problems. They may not know it. I know it because my parents did it. That's all for this week. Our episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy, and we are grateful to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Friends, we're launching a book club, and I would like to invite you to join me. It'll be a chance to connect, share, and learn from one another. To learn more, sign up for our newsletter at interfaithradio.org. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe and that you stay connected. We will see you next week. <laughs>